You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, November 14th, 2021 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. David Zoll, a writer in New York, he wrote that people are suffering and dying under the torture of the fantasy self they're failing to become. I'll say it again. People are suffering and dying under the torture of the fantasy self they're failing to become. And that's a line from his most recent book called Seculosity that God has been using to expose things in my heart that desperately need to get cut out. And the controlling thesis of the book, I won't give too much of it away, is that the religious impulse in our country and in our culture is actually stronger than it's ever been before. Zal says it's a whole lot easier to rebrand than extinguish. And listen to what he says. He says, confidence in the religious narratives, historical religious narratives, may look like it's collapsing, but what studies fail to report is that the marketplace in replacement religion is booming. We may be sleeping in on Sundays in greater number than ever before, but we've never been more pious. Religious observance hasn't faded amidst secularization so much as migrated. And we've got all the anxiety to prove it. We're seldom not in church. Zal will go on in this book to argue that little our religion, as he'll, he'll call it, this impulse, is what you and I individually lean on to tell ourselves that we're okay, that our lives matter. It's the ladders that we each climb toward, he says, a dream of wholeness. Little our religion, he says, is our preferred guilt management system. It's the story that each of us tells ourselves to justify our life. And then he makes this argument that carries through the entire book that has sat with me for weeks. He says, our religion is that which we each rely on for our enoughness. I love that word. You know, the heart of our current moment lies a a universal longing, a, a desire not to be happy or respected as much as to be enough. And Zal will say the domain of capital R religion, that which you and I think of when we think of classic religious narrative. He said for centuries it's provided the stories that helped each of us understand what it meant to truly live, to truly be whole, to know what it was to be enough. But now those are being replaced. The objects, he says, of our seculosity, these replacements, food, romance, education, children, technology, they're not not bad. bad. Quite the opposite, he argues. They are by and large great. But it's only when we lean on these things for our enoughness, when we co-opt them for our self-justification, or make them arbiters of salvation itself, that they begin to truly turn toxic. 
You see, it's a life under these notions of enoughness that people are suffering and dying under the torture of this fantasy self that they're failing to become. Our lives aren't producing the expected fruit that these narratives are providing. It's true even in the church. We're not immune from the temptations that Zal is talking about. And in fact, I think a fair argument can be made that even in the church, it's easy for us to love Jesus for salvation. But when we think about life now, real life now, truly living, becoming the person that we want to truly be, less anxious, less entitled, less angry, more patient, more generous, more loving. I'm not sure we really believe that Jesus is enough for our enoughness. That's the question. Do you believe that Jesus is enough for your enoughness? Do you really believe that your lives can be different? Well, that's where we're going to go this morning. I'm glad that you are here. If you are a guest with us, my name is Robert, and I get the privilege of leading us in this time as we go to God's Word. And we are on the seventh and last week of our I Am series, looking at the seven distinct statements that Jesus makes about himself, the I Am statements of Jesus. We're letting Jesus speak for himself, the claims that he has made about himself and what that means for our lives. And and in some ways, we've saved the best for last. I mean, we've done them in order, so we really didn't do anything about that. But we've saved the best for last because John 15 is so rich. And I'll tell you how rich it is. It's actually going to be a launching point for us from this week forward. So don't get frustrated if what you want to hear this morning isn't here. We're going to be here for a while. And the essence of what we're going to see this morning is simply this. Jesus alone satisfies your longing for enoughness and produces in you a life you could never have apart from him. That's really it. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to John chapter 15, and I'm going to be completely open and honest with you this morning. I am not feeling myself this morning. I'm actually not feeling well at all. Um, I woke up yesterday and felt horrible, and so out of love for you and an abundance of caution, I went and got tested for everything under the sun. COVID, X, Y, and Z, flu, A, B, C, and D, every, whatever they got. Evidently, it's all in my head, um, <laughs> literally and figuratively. So um, I'm, I truly am like one click away from wearing my pajamas up here. So um, you're going to have to actually pray me through this morning if we're going to make it at all. So that's just to be completely fair to everybody. Um, I don't know who I am this morning. So the coffee and chicken stock is kicking in though, so it's all right. As you get your Bibles open, let's get reoriented to John 15. Uh, A staggering portion of John's gospel is actually centered around one week in the life of Jesus of Nazareth, his final week before his death and his resurrection. And within that one week, John chapters 13 through 17 take place on the night that he will go to the cross. 
He's spending his final and, and very intense time with his 12 disciples. And before the night will be over, it will be his 11. And in this time, he's pouring into them. He's preparing them for his departure. If you go back and start in John 13 and read this week, you'll see he, he washes their feet in a demonstration of the kind of humility and the kind of love and the kind of sacrifice that he is in himself as a king. He shares this final Passover meal with his disciples. And then he begins to tell them that he's going to leave. And if you remember last week, as he began to talk about his departure, their hearts got really troubled. I mean, they had begun to taste, in a sense, the very thing they were made for. This relationship, this community of love and trust and even inclusion with the Godhead himself, they had been with Jesus. And now he says he's going to leave. And they're a bit undone. And so Jesus tells them that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but by him. And then as we read on, he promises to send them his very spirit. The very spirit of God in John 14 would be their helper. He would be with them. And so I want you to understand that what Jesus says this morning in John chapter 15 is still in the context of this last evening that he's having with his disciples, and it's still even more so in the context of him trying to soothe their troubled hearts. Their hearts are troubled, and Jesus is speaking to them out of this. And so in John chapter 15, verse 1, Jesus says to them, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Now let's stop right there. We're not going to get far if we do one verse at a time, but let's stop right here because I I desperately, when we go through things like this on Sunday morning in God's word, I I want you, one of the aims of our time in the Bible together is I want you to be good Bible readers. And so you've got to understand in some sense the direct reality of what Jesus is saying here. And I know so many of us are familiar with John 15. If you grew up in church at all, it's one of our most favorite sections of Scripture. But Jesus is saying something very specific here when he begins to transition in this conversation. And so before we go kind of headlong into the passage, you've got to recognize that Jesus isn't just shifting metaphors for teaching's sake. Like he's not just pulling out another metaphor and now he's going to teach them something else about who he is and, and who we are. If you remember, if you've been with us at all through this series, you, you might remember that when we started, there were moments when the Pharisees and the religious leaders would argue with Jesus, talking about Moses, you know, or, or God, you know, sending bread to feed his people in the wilderness and, and Jesus saying that I am the true bread standing in the temple and the Feast of Tabernacles and booths as the grand illumination begins to happen and he begins to proclaim, I am the true light. I am the light of the world. As he's talking again to his disciples and his religious leaders, he talks about being the good shepherd. God had promised a shepherd for his people that he was going to send. And Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. So you've got to understand when Jesus starts here and he begins to say that I am the true vine, he's first saying it in direct comparison or direct connection to something else. 
He'll begin to unpack it metaphorically with his disciples, but he's making a grand statement first. You see, in the Old Testament, especially in the prophetic books like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the metaphor of a vine was used over and over by God through the prophets to represent the people of Israel. And so right here when Jesus says that he is the true, he didn't just say, I'm a vine, my father's a vine dresser, you're the branches, let me help you understand. He said, I am the true vine. When Jesus makes this statement, he's not trying to connect you and I with what we understand about gardening. He's connecting himself with this image that they would have understood from the Old Testament. And what's really interesting is that every single time this image is used by God through the prophets in the Old Testament, it's always negative. It's always in reference to God's people, Israel, and it's always negative. God had planted Israel as a vine to produce good fruit, but Israel had failed to do that. And because they had failed to become a vine that produced good fruit, God brought judgment on them. You can hear a little bit of it in Jeremiah 2. God spoke through Jeremiah and he said, I planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? In Ezekiel 19, he said, your mother was like a vine in a vineyard planted by the water, fruitful and full of branches by reason of abundant water. Its strong stems became rulers and scepters. It towered aloft among the thick boughs. It was seen in its height with the mass of its branches. But the vine was plucked up in fury, cast down to the ground. The east wind dried up its fruit. They were stripped off and withered. As for its strong stem, fire consumed it. Now it's planted in the wilderness in a dry and thirsty land. In Isaiah 5, God said through Isaiah, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only rancid so you've got to understand first and foremost that Jesus is saying that where Israel failed, I'm not going to fail. Where Israel failed to hold fast, I will hold fast. I'm not going to waver. I'm not going to give in. I am going to trust the Father all the way to the end. I am the true vine. I am the true and better Israel. And the weight of this whole conversation that Jesus is having, everything about the world, everything about God's history with his people, it's now being changed because of Jesus. They wouldn't have missed it. This is like a seismic shift. The the tectonic plates in their understandings and in their idea is being shifted as he's saying this. And as he says this, the truth of Jesus is what makes what he's about to say such good news for troubled hearts, even today. And so as he makes this statement, he begins to move into unpacking it in a way that you and I are more familiar with, a little more metaphorically. And we've got to understand, just straight out of the gate, there are three main characters in the metaphor. 
There's Jesus, the true vine, the Father, God the Father, the gardener, and you and I, the branches. And so let's listen to Jesus as he makes this statement about who he is, how it begins in his grace and mercy to soothe troubled hearts. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Now, remember, Jesus had told his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. In fact, in just a couple of seconds, in verse 11, he's going to say, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So Jesus is after comforting their troubled hearts and speaking to them a truth, some reality so enormous that his joy would be in them. And so when we read what he's saying right here, Jesus isn't warning his disciples. There are warnings in the Bible, but this isn't one of them. When Jesus says that the Father, he he takes away every branch that does not bear fruit, that word take away, more often than not when it's used, is translated to lift up. And the important part of understanding what he's saying right here is that it's every branch that is in him. That's going to become more clear in just a minute. What he's saying is that the Father, every branch that is in Christ, that isn't bearing fruit, the Father lifts up. If you've ever seen a a vineyard, how it's strung up on wires, how the branches are lifted up and tied off on wires so the branches don't fall and get trampled and the fruit doesn't get ruined so they can get the sun more easily. Every branch that's in Christ that's not bearing fruit, the Father lifts up. Now, he's going to speak of judgment, sure. That's in verse 6. But it's not right here. And we know it because of what he says in verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. All of you grammar nerds out there who log on to your Bible apps, you, you know that clean is just a cognate of the same word for prune or trim. Same word. So Jesus is saying, I've already cleaned you. I've already pruned you. You're fruitful because you're part of me. Right? He's not warning them here about judgment. He's speaking a reality of their having been connected to him. Now, as he moves from here, this is where we get to the special sauce. What Jesus is about to say here has captivated me for a bit now. And we're just going to scratch the surface of it this morning. But it's going to be the launching point for where we go from this week. So stick with me in the next couple of weeks. Verse 4, Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. Throughout this discourse in chapter 15, Jesus uses this abiding language 11 times. It's not only the controlling idea of this conversation. I will argue, and I will, it's where we're going to go, that it is the controlling idea in understanding what it means to be a Christian, of what real Christianity really is. Abide in me. Make your home in me. Settle in to me. That's what abide means. Abide in me and I in you. 
As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. What Jesus is saying is that the abundant, eternal life of his can be yours as you abide in him. It truly is very simple. Branches get their life from the vine. Vines produce their fruit through the branches. Jesus is telling them that he is producing an entirely new way of living organically in and through you as you abide in him. But you've got to be connected to this vine. I mean, just think about it realistically. If any of you garden, if you've ever ever tried to grow anything, I've got blue thumbs, but I've tried before, right? The vine is the part of the plant that's actually rooted. It gets its nutrients from the soil, and those nutrients pulse through the vine outward to the branches where the vine produces its fruit. Apart from the vine, branches have no access to nutrients. They're not rooted in the soil, right? They're attached to the vine. Vines have a one-way influence on branches. It doesn't go the other direction. It's a one-way life-giving relationship. Jesus is saying that he is the vine. His roots are dug down deep into the Godhead itself. Therefore, the the very life of God is pulsing through him and to us, the branches, as we make our home in him, as we abide in him, as we remain connected to him. Jesus is talking about participation in the divine nature of God and the utter transformation of your nature. He's offering himself to you and I without limit. It's his life. He is offering to us his very life. Friends, this is why Christianity is never simply a set of beliefs or a system of ethics. It's never just theology and morality. Christianity at its core is about having a new nature, an absolutely new nature, your heart being grafted into a new vine, the vine of Christ rooted and grounded deep in the Godhead itself, The heart of Christianity is always about regeneration, being born anew, a new life, the very life of heaven pulsing through you. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? He's not reserving part of this for some kind of special insider elite group of people. He is offering himself, his very life to all of us. Nothing, listen to him, just think of the implications. Nothing stands between you and moment-by-moment presence of Jesus and his life pulsing through yours. 
Friends, is this your understanding of Christianity? If it's not, it, it could very well begin to explain why we're all so prone to wander. Jesus is not giving his disciples and, and giving you and I a, a set of ideals that we have to live up to. No, he's holding out his very life for us to live into. As we abide in him, he says that his life begins to produce fruit on our branches. A life of increasing Christ-likeness begins to flower in us. Now, I want you to understand that here in this conversation in John 15, Jesus doesn't limit how we understand what the fruit are here. He doesn't narrow it down. It's all-encompassing. It is the total expression of Christ in us to the full measure of the glory of God. That's what he's talking about. But just consider for a moment what you might be familiar with when you think about the fruit growing in your life, having been connected as you abide and make your home in Jesus. There's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. There's the ever-deepening enjoyment of Jesus that his joy would be in us to the fullest measure imaginable? What Jesus is saying is that as you and I abide in him, real change is possible. An absolutely new way of living becomes reality. The question is whether or not you and I actually believe it. I think, at least, you know, as honest as I can be in this moment, I think a lot of us have given up on real change. I think we live with things in our life that we know we shouldn't. Things we're embarrassed by. Things we're ashamed of. Things we know are sinful. Listen to Jesus. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, verse 7, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. In the context of the conversation, be a good Bible reader. Jesus is not talking about prayer in general. The context of the conversation is abiding in him and bearing fruit. If you find yourself despairing of joy and wanting joy, if you would own the fact that you're more hard-hearted than you would ever want to admit and you want to be tender, if you're bitter and you want to be forgiving, anxious, and you want to be a non-anxious presence wherever you are, Jesus says just ask for it. Ask for it. I'm the vine and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You're the branch. You're not attached to the ground. You can't do anything on your own. You can't have the kind of life, the abundance of life that your heart was hardwired for and so desperately craves. 
but he is the vine, rooted and grounded. Changing you is what he's about. And yes, he said, for in greater fruitfulness, the Father will prune you. We'll bring the pruning then. I mean, if what we want is more fruitfulness, the full expression of Christ's likeness in us, the comprehensive nature of his life flowing through us and the fruit of being abided in him, growing in in more abundance in us, then prune us all day. Great. Take out what doesn't need to be there. Take out what's getting in the way. Take out what I don't need. Go for it. This is the promise of the Father. But here's the thing, and I know there's so many ways we can go in this. Here's where I think I want to go this morning. If we believe that what Jesus is saying is true, that real change is possible as we abide in him because his divine life is coursing through us. If we really believe that what he's saying is true, then it's not only wrong, but it's inconsistent for you and I to give up on ourselves and give up on other people. John 15 doesn't allow us to write other people off. I really think the church has got to hear this. If the Spirit of God is pulsing through another brother or sister, then you've got to understand, according to Jesus in John 15, their potential is staggering. Because their potential isn't measured by their self-discipline. Their potential isn't measured by their personal motivation. Their potential isn't measured by their inherent interior tenacity. Their potential in this life for Christ's likeness is measured by the abundant life of Jesus at work flowing through them. And the same goes for you. It's a potential that someone who might already be displaying what your brother and sister is lacking doesn't have the potential for greater change and growth in because the abundant life of Christ isn't flowing through them. It's a staggering reality. And you and I have got to stop treating one another and even ourselves as though we can't change. Jesus is calling us to expand our expectations of him in us. What he's saying is he wants to express the comprehensive nature of his fullness in and through you. And I think we lose sight of abiding in Jesus and we lose sight of this present power of Christ to work in us and the supernatural potential to live the life of Christ. I think you and I, just like everyone else, we we lose sight of this and we go looking for other vines to tap into. We go looking for other things to provide for us what it is we think is not possible with him. He's not enough. And so we try to diversify our portfolio and Jesus, the way of Jesus, just becomes another religious vine that we try to tap into, believing that if we just do it right, maybe we can earn our enoughness with him. And when we do it well, we find ourselves all puffed up with pride, and when we don't, we're in the lowest doldrums of despair. Friends, but that is not a vine that produces the fruit of God's kingdom. 
when you and I try to abide or make our souls at home in all sorts of, of, of other vines, our professions, our family, our possessions, our politics, our ethnicity, whatever it may be, this is when you and I wind up suffering and dying under the torture of the fantasy self we fail to become. Because those vines cannot produce abundant life. Abide in me. Now, how do we do that? Again, we've got weeks to talk about this, so don't, don't get too anxious. We're going to talk about this a lot. He gives us a, a couple ideas of what it looks like to abide in him. For time's sake, I'm just going to focus on one this morning. Look at verse 9. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Friends, that is an extraordinary statement. Jesus is extending the Trinitarian eternal love of the Godhead to you and I. And so it, it helps as we consider the statement that he's making here to understand the reality and the impact that his love has on us. And I'll try to explain it this way. A Christian is someone who has put their faith in Jesus and has received him as their savior and as their king. Someone who, who sees that up to that point in their life, they have been trying to make themselves acceptable to God and and they see what God has done for us in his son and the necessity of his work in our place for our sins. And we come to him in repentance and we ask God to accept us, not because of who we are and what we've done, but because of who Jesus is and what he's done. And friends, the minute that penny drops, we, we call that the gospel. The minute that penny drops and we go to God in faith, our sins are wiped clean. The perfect Record, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. God the Father sees you as he sees his son, as perfect, satisfying, and all-sufficient as he is. And you are grafted into the true vine. You have a new heart and a new nature. The very abundant eternal life of Christ, the true vine, is pulsing in and through you. Now, branches don't enhance the vine. Branches live off of the vine. Remember, it's a one-way influence. You don't increase how loved you are by God. On that day that your eyes are opened and you turn to him in faith, you are as loved and delighted in by the Father as you will ever be, as any of the greatest saints of old are. His love towards you, you you've got to understand this. This is ultimately, in a sense, what it's going to be to abide. You've got to understand this. His love towards you knows no increase or decrease. When you begin to receive that, when that penny progressively begins to drop and you begin to abide in that and make your home there, 
when you abide in that love and you get settled right there, that's your new address. His life courses through you and you start to change. Not because I stood up here or someone else came to you and told you you had to change, but because of this internal dynamic of the very power of God through his son and by his spirit is at work in you, changing you. This is what it is to abide. It means that you and I live off of Jesus' love. Our awareness of his love, it grows, and our enjoyment of his love, it grows. It means you and I don't, don't try to build and establish our relationship with Christ on how we feel about him. It means you and I abide in how God the Father feels about us because of his son. The steady, unchanging, eternal satisfaction that God has with his son. This is what it begins to mean to abide in his love. One psychologist, he he did a study about 20 years ago. And it was one simple question. And he began to do some work off people's answers. And the question was this. What comes into your mind regarding how God feels about you? Do you know what the number one answer was in the study? Disappointed. Disappointed. Friends, this is not what his word says. He longs to be gracious to you, to show compassion to you. Friends, if we truly believe what we say we believe about the cross, if we truly believe what we say we believe about the great exchange of Christ taking our sin upon himself in our place and giving us, imputing to us his perfect enoughness, his perfect righteousness, if we truly believe that, then we've got to believe that our relationship with him is based on what he has done. And he's done an amazing job. And he wants to be with us. In fact, we could spend the entire morning on the verses that follow right there where he calls us his friends. We'll find another time for that. But the reality of it is for so many of us, the religious instinct is so strong. The religious instinct to always want to prove your enoughness to justify yourself. Do you genuinely believe that God is not disappointed in you? This is part of what abiding is. It's making a home in his love. It's living, settled, committed in his love for you. So much, I think, so much of our personal trouble and and angst comes out of a failure to make our home in his love for us, to abide in it, to, to try to find our enoughness elsewhere. And then we act surprised when we're riddled with anxiety and entitlement and frustration and despair. We're not living in his love. 
we're not abiding in it. Friends, Jesus says, I am the true vine. Abide in me as I in you. This is the, the central call of the Christian life. I've quoted it before, the, the book Essentialism, Greg McCowan. His whole argument is that there can only truly be one number one priority in life. And in his book, he, he goes through the history of the idea of priorities. And he said the word priority came into the English language in the 1400s, and it was singular. It meant the very first and prior thing. It stayed singular for the next 500 years. Only in the 1900s did you and I get arrogant enough to think that we could pluralize the idea of priorities and in our life have multiple first things. There can only be one first thing. I am the true vine. Abide in me as I in you. Get this and everything begins to flow through him. Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Friends, this is what Richmond needs. It, it, it needs a people whose lives are organized around the first priority of abiding in Jesus a people who are making their home settled in his love for them, who are increasingly recognizing that he's not holding any of himself back from us, but he is offering us the fullness of his life to work in us and through us to the measure of the glory of the Father. That's where change comes from. Friends, real Christianity is abiding in Jesus. And he's calling you to be grafted into him, to remain in his love. All it takes is to repent and believe. All it takes is to say, Jesus, I have been tied up into the wrong vine. I need you. I trust your grace. I want you in your life. That's all it takes. And he will graft you into himself and his abundant life and the work of his very spirit will begin coursing through your life. Maybe you're here this morning and you hear all of this and you're like, man, I'm enjoying the grace and love of Jesus every day, 24-7. Abiding in Jesus is second nature. You ready? Enjoy it. Praise God. Enjoy it. That's the essence of what it means to follow him. It's to make your home in him. Enjoy it. Friends, let me, let me pray for us as we get ready to respond to God's word while I still have a little bit of my voice left. Father, we settle for so many lesser things than the fullness of life that you hold out to us. We're constantly believing the lies that somehow you're shortchanging us on something and everything else that the world around us holds out can give us what it is we think we need and want. 
this morning and the weeks to come as we consider what it is to truly abide in you, to be yours, to live in the fullness of your love, to make our home in you and be satisfied. But I ask that you would help us now as we begin just to consider it and look at it in the, in, in the time this morning and in the next few weeks, you would help us to see all the, the other vines and the other things that we try to dip parts of our life into to diversify our hope and expectation that maybe if this one doesn't work, this one will, this one will bring the life I'm, I'm looking for and want and the change I'm desperate to have. Lord, help us to see that you are all sufficient and all satisfying. You are enough for our enoughness. And we ask that you would do this in the name of your son for his glory and our deepest and abiding joy. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.